Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for being here. We're going to spend the hour today talking about WDET and our Detroit Journalism Cooperative Partners and our look back to look forward. Nearly 50 years after this city and others erupted in violence, the cooperative is exploring whether conditions that contributed to that civic unrest have actually changed. We're looking at the Kerner Commission report that tried to determine why African Americans in so many cities were rioting during the 1960s. One of the issues, according to the commission, was racism and racial attitudes. This hour, I want to talk about those two topics with an old friend of mine, Lester Spence, Associate Professor of Political Science at Johns Hopkins University, Detroit native and author of Knocking the Hustle Against the Neoliberal Turn, in black politics. Lester, welcome home and welcome to Detroit Today. Oh, it's good to be here, man. It's real good to be it's home. It's good too. to see you. Yeah, it's great to see you. You look great. So let's start with uh, the book, the, the the title of the book and what it means. What do you mean by the le- neoliberal turn in black politics? Okay, so uh, what I'm referring to is so around. Uh, if you look at a uh, inequality curve, right, or you look at uh, inequality over time from 1929 to now, you have really high levels in 1929, really really high levels now, and then a dip in the middle, you know, in the 50s. Sort and of 60s. an equaling out or, or leavening. Yeah, I yeah guess we suggest that, yeah. a le- right, but then it starts to increase around 1970 or so. That is, the uh, inequality levels in the United States start to increase, and we this that uptick that we refer to as kind of the neoliberal turn, and what happens is that a number of policies get instituted that basically roll back the welfare state, um, that roll back something like welfare, that, uh, that, and, uh, that ro- rolls back the ability of governments to collect, collect taxes for progressive ends and kind of replaces that with kind of, na- of an entrepreneurial dynamic which makes make cities be more entrepreneurial, which tries to make individuals more entrepreneurial. So you take that hustle that I'm knocking in the title it's now, it's not just a descriptive that says, okay, I, I hustle or I have to hustle. It's like what happens is that we increasingly, um, that we increasingly give resources to people who hustle and then take resources away from people who can't hustle. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, and we, we see that play out uh, not just in black politics, as you point out in the, in the title, but overall in, in American politics. This has been yeah. the trend. This has been the, the sort of central conflict of American politics for several decades. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and you really see that. So we think about uh, on, the, on the right side of the political spectrum, you know, you, a lot of Republicans laud Ronald Reagan. And it's Ronald Reagan who makes kind of, who talks about this entrepreneurial spirit that America has to get back to. And he connects that entrepreneurial spirit to a set of policies that, again, reduce the ability of of governments to collect taxes that actually. uh, In fact, he actually says that government isn't the solution. Government is the problem. problem. Right. So when so that's an American thing. But then when that ethos gets injected kind of in black politics, then it actually increases the divide between the haves and have-nots in black communities. Yeah, yeah. Uh, talk about what black politics looked like before this turn, and then we'll talk about what effect this turn has had on, on oh, black politics you. and yeah. on black communities. Yeah, so if you go back to the 60s, and what you had was, for the most part, of, for the most part, even though you had significant differences 
of significant differences between different black, black populations. Black folk were basically on the liberal to left end of the political spectrum. Uh, they strongly believed that government should be used for progressive ends. They strongly believed in collecting and collecting taxes for the per taxes for the purpose of something like welfare. Uh, they strongly believed in unions, um, not just in cities like Detroit, but but nationwide. Um, if you look at something like like black churches, right? Even though there is no one quote unquote black church, black churches were on the left end of the spectrum. They went to the extent they connected. Uh, the the New Testament to anything they connect it to, to a liberation kind of gospel right right uh, and then after that you see all that stuff kind of wither away so instead of the liberation a, a type of liberation gospel you have the prosperity gospel that changes the Bible to uh, into a, a self help manual um, <laughs> you know we the the black elected officials we have are articulating you know they're more likely to blame black people for the failure for their failures than actually articulate really progressive causes. Uh, and then black attitudes themselves have shifted gradually to the right, right? Where it's become, where they become more, more conservative. In some and so ways. talk about, talk about what that looks like. Uh, let's start here in the city of Detroit, the state of Michigan. What does this neoliberal turn sort of do to us? Yeah. So, uh, so in a, in a state like Michigan, uh, the first thing you have to do is talk about the larger structural dynamics that kind of create the context for this. Right. So Michigan already has the most um, has the most lax regulations for charter schools, I think, in the in the country. Um, and that's the product of state legislation. But with this last move to, quote unquote, bail out the Detroit public school system, they make, you know, they, they basically take charter schools and make them the norm or the standard within uh, Detroit spaces. Charter schools basically represent kind of the neo is one arm of the neoliberalization of public education. So, and you can see that in a number of other areas, we have these structural things that happen kind of at state levels, at the national level, and then these things kind of trickle down to actors at the local level and they have to wrestle with them. Some of them do so under, you know, people like, uh, like my friend Dan Varner, uh, like um, excellent like my, schools, Detroit. Yeah, excellent school, okay. Detroit. Like uh, Tanya Allen, who's the president CEO of Skillman. Um, some of them kind of work with those constraints because they kind of have to. But then in other cases, you actually have people, black people in Detroit, who ride or die for charters and believe that that and other forms of neoliberalization is the solution to Detroit's public school problems. Yeah. Right. Uh, talk about why. I mean. The narrative we often hear about why this is uh, this is the way the country has gone is that the old way of doing things uh, relied too much on government, mm -hmm. uh, took took away from the individual the ability to move up the ladder. Mm -hmm. uh, all of the things that that we sort of identify with the sort of American ethos, I guess that this mm -hmm. this idea of anybody being able to move from uh, the lowest station, the lowest economic station to the highest in a lifetime. And it's never it's never been really that true. But, I mean, it's certainly yeah. what we say we believe in here. Uh, why isn't this turn toward neoliberalism uh, a, a, a sort of rededication to that ideal? In other words, that the government can't really move. Some people would say the government really can't move people forward the government can't really yeah. uh, sustain a, a, a community with with taxes you need you need entrepreneurs you need business uh, what's wrong with that yeah well I mean you take 
and this is why it's good to be, it's really really good to be home. I mean, Baltimore is not home, but it's good. To, so Baltimore you, is so both of our homes. Yeah, yeah, you're right, right. <laughs> we yeah. both lived there a long time. Yeah, yeah. But here, when you talk about things like the strength of the union, people really get it. So you go back 40, 50 years where you could, you know, my dad's a union guy, my brother's a union guy, where my dad could basically get a job, um, get a job at a plant, make decent enough wages to basically provide for us to send two of his kids to, to, to the University of Michigan to provide for his grandkids, right, right. have a nice, uh, nice crib, et cetera. And he's not alone in that, even among black folk. You know, black folk, I remember there was a uh, Beckham, yeah, back I can now mention. Yeah, I talk about his story he all the time. He would be my uh, uncle. Yeah, so <laughs> Beckham told me the story about getting fired from Plant A and then walking across the street and getting a job at Plant B <laughs> the same day, right? And that actually that drives productivity. Yes. That drives um, that that creates the context in which people can be kind of innovative, right? Um, the unions are strong, were strong in part because of government, because of government legislation passed in the 30s, strengthened in the 40s and the 50s, but that, that allowed for people to organize. Yeah, and that allowed people to move forward in and, their and lives. That allowed people to move forward, right? The whole entrepreneurial trickle-down thing, empirically, we know that that doesn't work. The, I remember when uh, Reagan was actually making the argument, he was making the argument that if you uh, released... Uh, entrepreneurial creativity and redu by reducing taxes we'd actually collect more revenue right because people would be like oh my god right. I could do anything they're right. not taking all this loot out my check and then that will end up increasing the revenue that never it's happened. never play it's never paid it's off. never panned off yeah never panned out yeah uh, this is Detroit today on 1019 WDET I'm Stephen Henderson my guest is Lester Spence associate professor of political science at Johns Hopkins University a Detroit native and author of knocking the hustle against the neoliberal turn in black top politics we're talking about his book uh, we're talking about race and racial attitudes we're talking about this racial moment in America uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. Lester, I want to, I want to pivot here a bit and connect the, the, the themes in your book to what we see happening in black communities right now. We talk a lot on this show about this racial moment, about uh, the sudden acknowledgement and witnessing of uh, of really brutal incidents in the black community that uh, have gone on forever, but I think they they take on a really different dynamic now that everybody can you know uh, call up on your phone right and take a look at what's happening uh, when we have. Uh, discussions like uh, the one that Tanasi Coates started last year, uh, or maybe it was—I think maybe that might even be two years ago now—about uh, about reparations, a, a really sophisticated conversation about about a topic that's been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. How does this this neoliberal turn and the effect it's having on Black politics? How does that connect to? Things like Black Lives Matter, which is a subject you teach about oh, yeah. uh, at Johns Hopkins University. How do all these things come together? So when you basically uh, take the welfare state and kill it, right, when you kind of uh, kill, uh, gradually kill or significantly reduce support for public housing, when you significantly reduce support, uh, you end basically welfare. You end welfare as we know it, right? 
what you end up with is, uh, and then you kind of kill public schools at the same time. You've got this large population that would have, that under, quote unquote, under other circumstances would have been taken care of by the welfare state, yeah. uh, would have gone into public schools and then gone uh, from public schools to be able to find a role in the economy. They now don't really have a place in the economy kind of as we, as it exists now, right? Um so what that requires is kind of a state response. So what you see uh, is a significant increase in policing, right? So in a case like Baltimore, uh, and this is the factor what I use every time I talk about this stuff, police spending was at, uh, in 1990, the city of Baltimore spent $145 million on police. Um, last year, they asked for 400, I think, $475 million. Wow. Right. Uh, and this is in a budget of what one one point five billion, I think. Yeah, maybe uh, a little bit more in, in two point three, yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. So, but by way of comparison, Parks and Recs they spent thirty six million dollars in nineteen ninety and thirty six million dollars now. Yeah, so less than ten percent. Less than ten percent, right? Right. So it's like so par- Parks and Recs flattens, police spending ramps up. There was a moment in time, I think, when you were in Baltimore, where uh, Martin O'Malley was was mayor. Yeah. He made more arrests, more single arrests yeah. than there were citizens in the city of Baltimore, right? Within a very short period of time, like several hundred thousand arrests. Yeah. And not only did that, but I mean, this was this was championed as and championed by, you know, as you point out, by yeah. lots of different people. Yes. Precisely because black people are themselves the victims of yeah. of the crimes. I mean, you get this weird dynamic where mm-hmm. uh, the, the the solution or the proposed solution to these problems ends up seeming like the the, the right way to go because things have gotten so bad because yeah. of those policies yeah. in the first place. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right, exactly. So you see you see that dynamic. Uh, you take a c- case like Ferguson. You know, it's a, it's a little bit different. But because cities are resource poor, again, I talked about the cities, uh, the ability of cities to collect taxes have been reduced. Uh, what cities like Ferguson have done basically is started taxing citizens through policing. Yeah. So the uh, police f- fines in Ferguson is the second or third highest source of municipal revenue. Right. Right. Right, uh, because they don't they don't have it from taxes, so they, they you know oh, I'm gonna, gonna write you a ticket. I'm gonna yes. and if you don't pay that ticket, you're gonna go to jail. Yep. There's gonna be fines and and, 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 and then stuff like that, that end up ends up bleeding back out into the community. So you basically hollow out all these communities because people are either connected to the they are either in the joint or they're somehow connected to the joint, and right. then that has all these problematic. Uh, uh, side effects. Yeah, yeah. So, so when you look, when you look at a movement or uh, like Black Lives Matter, when you teach about a movement like Black Lives Matter, what are you saying is the solution? I mean, this is one of the things that that I struggle with, and I think a lot of other people struggle with. How do you go back? How do you sort of turn around, yeah. given the political climate, given that we now have forty or fifty years of this this kind of view of government as yeah. being in the way, being the problem, as being the norm, right? That's yeah. the baseline. Yeah. Yes. And anything yes. we talk about uh, in, in any other direction has to start there. So how do you even – is it something like – uh, a conversation about reparations, like what what Coates is saying. I mean, is that even is that even possible in this climate? Well, um, so that conversation is really helpful and it's really really important. Um, but the challenge, the challenge there is there's no real A to Z 
right? So we're here at A, and Z would be something like reparations. There's no real path there. But I mean, but still, it, but still, the conversation is good because it re-steer, it steers people towards thinking about government as actually doing something for being progressive and doing something for folk. Yeah. Um, I actually attended uh, the social uh, socialism conference. Uh, over the weekend in Chicago. I love that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, the socialism was, conference. Yeah, it was dope. It was really dope. That was the first time there. And attitudinally, for the first time, there's added, there's added, there's evidence, there's uh, empirical evidence that young folk are more likely to believe that capitalism is a bad economic model than than have ever believed that before. So it, the question becomes kind of how do you take those conversations and then steer it towards re towards 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 thinking about uh the way government at local uh at local county state national level should operate but the conversation it can't just be conversations it has to also be connected to kind of organizing around local struggles yeah whether it's uh whether it's in the case of flint you know in the water stuff uh or this case in policing so and black lives matter represents one of the two most powerful or one of the two or three most most hopeful kind of movement-based activities, the other one being Occupy Wall Street, right? So the question is, is how do we take something like uh, like the, the quick death that's happening by policing and connect that up with kind of the economic violence slow death? Right, right. right. And, and if you can do that, we can do we could be doing we could do something. Do you feel like Black Lives Matter is going to have the effect that it could on things like? this election i mean you look at what what we're talking about in this election you Mm -hmm. look at the extreme Mm -hmm. choice that we have on the republican side i mean here again it seems like we're always playing defense right Uh, there's no there's no chance to get the ball and advance it yeah it's really just trying to stop the worst possible scenario from happening. Yeah, well, you know what? But if you look locally, in a, so like in Baltimore, we just had uh, we just had elections, uh, had primary elections a second ago. Right. Right. Um, and we're going to have a new mayor. Electing a new mayor. We're Catherine new mayor. Pugh, I Catherine think, Pugh. Is, yeah. is likely to be. Yeah, she's likely to be the mayor. Because uh, she won't lose with the Republican. No, no she won't. that is, right? No, but, but what we had at the city council level is we had the election of several progressives. I mean, like several young progressive candidates. Right. So, yes, there is this there is this defensive dynamic. But whether it's the election, whether it's elections in a place like Baltimore, whether it's kind of minor victories that something like the Chicago Teachers Union has been able to to attain, even in the face of significant legislative hurdles. I think we're in a really this is the beginning of the beginning, no doubt, you know, to, to be fair. But I think we're looking for the first time really in our lifetimes, our adult lifetimes, definitely. We actually see, you know, I can see us starting to get momentum for just for the simple idea that government should be working for citizens and not, not for our corporations or wealth. All right. So let's talk about then the, the flip side of that in the presidential contest. Uh, Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. Uh, the presumptive Democratic nominee, yeah. uh, somebody who's been around a long time, has been, you know, all over the map in terms of this stuff. I mean, there's some, yeah. st- there are some things that she's been associated with that have been a, a, a direct pushback mm-hmm. against uh, the idea of uh, gov- government austerity, uh, these kind of things. But also, at times, has been in favor of things like uh, the the, the mid '90s crime bill, which uh, you know led to. The, the the mass incarceration that we've seen over the last couple of decades 
is there, you know, this is what the Sanders movement, the Bernie Sanders movement was mm-hmm. about. Is there an opportunity with mainline Democratic politics to really move the ball? Um, there is, but it's but it's kind of it's it's still kind of uh, that opportunity is kind of. We have more opportunity now than we've had in a long time, but there's still some constraints. So in a case like Clinton, um, Clinton is actually, and one thing that it's important to note about the neoliberal turn, about some of the policies I've been talking about, it has basic, even though it was started by somebody like, promoted by somebody like Reagan on the right, um, it, it has bipartisan consensus, right? So, yeah. you know, it was Clinton that repealed, that repealed, repealed welfare. It was Clinton. Uh, Bill Clinton they, they who passed the crime policy, welfare. right, right, right. <laughs> uh, it was it was Clinton that uh, that that signed the legislation um, uh, that ramped up federal approaches, punitive approaches to sure. crime, and then it was his wife who supported both of those moves. Right, right. Now the thing is, is because of the the move from the left, kind of the Occupy left in the form of Bernie Sanders on one hand. And then is for the black radical left represented on Black Lives Matter and the other. We actually see her move towards the left, right? So we actually see significant movement. But when it comes rhetorically, time, yeah, rhetorically, yeah. right? But when it came time to actual to 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 put actual left leaning planks planks uh, on the Democratic platform, I think most of the votes were seven six, right? Where yeah. where 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 Sanders had six folk, uh, Clinton had seven. And it was seven, six line item all the way down. Yeah. So what that shows is is that there is there is enough energy there to push her, but we still need to do a lot more work to kind of tilt her. And 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 where that's going to come from, uh, given that Trump tendency, I'm not quite. I, I, there's some talk that uh, there have been a number of attempts by uh, people on the left to deeply engage in electoral politics yeah, yeah. and if that continues then maybe not this election but the next election maybe uh maybe at the house of representatives level um and definitely at the state and local level i think we'll start to see i mean listen you, you you sound optimistic about all this i mean you feel it feels like you think there's there's a possibility for an actual uh, sort of articulated uh, left-leaning further left-leaning uh, wing of the Democratic Party to, to I guess, to, to emerge and start defining what they do. Yeah, uh, yes, and a left-leaning force within Black politics, which is basically, which is basically, um, which we really haven't had in a long time. I wow, I I don't think I ever would have articulated myself <laughs> as an I optimist. Either. <laughs> but but yes, yeah, I'm listening to myself talk, right? As I'm, as I'm a trying to figure out if I'm making sense, but right. then b listening to like I do sound hopeful. And That's I, right. I think it is possible to take a city like Detroit. I think it is possible to take a city like Baltimore. Yeah. Now the ch- the big challenge though is that that Trump tendency kind of dominates a state like Michigan. And while I can think of, I talked about that A to Z thing with reparations, I could think of an A to Z move as far as how do we go about taking a city like Detroit? How do we go about taking a city like Baltimore or making them, you know, tilting them to the left? It's harder to think about what that looks like statewide in a state state like Michigan. Yeah, yeah. You you got a lot of people who just don't don't believe that uh, that government can make a difference, or that uh, you know, or that government action can inspire or energize people to do it themselves. I mean, there's a fundamental disconnect. Yes, yes. And then, and then, to the extent they think uh, government works, they think it works. You know, in a state like Michigan, a lot of folk think it just works for black people. Right. 
Right, right. And so I'm against it. Right? Yeah, so I'm against uh, it. It's like, no, you're basically taking my tax money and you're giving it to black people. Yeah. Well, this is what we right. hear Detroit fatigue, right? This phrase that comes out of Lansing all the time, which <laughs> drives me crazy. Yes. Uh, the idea that they're tired of either caring or bailing out. You know, yeah. I wrote a whole column about how this bailout word is is completely misused in the context oh of, my God, right? of Detroit schools. But, I mean, there is this sense that uh, that they're, they're, they're having to do too much and they're, they're tired of it. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when I come back, I'm going to continue my conversation with Lester Spence, associate professor of political science at Johns Hopkins, author of Knocking the Hustle Against the Neoliberal Turn in Black Politics. We're going to talk more about this racial moment in America, racial, racial, racial attitudes, racism. Uh, stay with us on Detroit Today and give us a call. What do you think about the current state of race and racial attitudes here in the United States? 313 577 1019 on the phones. Stay with us on Detroit today. You're listening to Detroit today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And thanks for being here. My guest today is Lester Spence, Associate Professor of Political Science at Johns Hopkins University, Detroit native and author of Knocking the Hustle Against the Neoliberal Turn in Black Politics. Uh, He is here as part of our WDET and Detroit Journalism Cooperative, looking back to look forward nearly 50 years after this city and others erupted in violence, the cooperative is exploring whether conditions that contributed to that civic unrest have changed. We're talking about race. We're talking about racial attitudes. We're talking about uh, austerity, government austerity, what effect it's had on our communities and particularly on black communities. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call at 313 313- Five seven seven one zero one nine is three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. Lester, I want to uh, turn the conversation again uh, to this idea of race uh, and power, and and I want to get you to to talk uh, and respond to a quote uh, from Errol Anthony Henderson, who is a political science professor at Penn State University, someone we both know uh, uh, from, you know, it, it's always funny to me. We all were at Michigan at around the same time. It, it was a real powerful moment. Somebody <laughs> say, right a lot of that. people there oh, yeah. that I still I have on the show. I talk to all the time yeah. about this stuff. There was something going on yes. in the water yes. in Ann Arbor for at real, that for time. Real. Uh, but, but let's listen to this uh, quote from uh, Errol Anthony Henderson. If you're not talking about uh, power, you're not talking about racism. So the idea that you can parse out of racism something as subjective as feelings instead of seeing racism as uh, the, the belief and practice of uh, uh, a policy of domination based on a specious concept of race. It's, it, it's really about power and it's institutional power. It's the only form uh, the only form of racism that's been institutionalized in this country. It's in this country's foundational documents. It's in the life-giving and life-sustaining institutions of this country is white supremacism. And most folks don't talk about it like that now, you know. What I'm saying? So People that's get uncomfortable sometimes when you say stuff. Like yes, that, and they right? and they forget that they should be uncomfortable mm-hmm. because they're often taught to deal with folks as if they're not uh, racist or, or at least as if their claims are not racist. So this becomes a difficulty just having the conversation. All right, that's Errol Anthony Henderson, a political science professor at Penn State University, a guest on this show a few months ago, talking about race and power and the difficulty getting people to engage uh, in discussions about race and racism in the 
context of that power and where that power comes from yeah. uh, and how it evolves. Uh, Lester Spence, you teach uh, at the Johns Hopkins University essentially mm-hmm. about race yeah. and, and uh, power. Talk about how your students, and I think this is really interesting. Johns Hopkins, uh, for folks who here who don't know, is a is a really super elite uh, uh, academic institution in the city of Baltimore. Uh, attracts a lot of kids with a lot of money. Very few African American students on that on that campus, uh, even as compared to uh, to some place like University of Michigan, which is struggling with its own uh, sustenance of, of of the black popula- population on that campus. These are kids who, for the most part, probably haven't been asked to think about race and power, haven't been asked to think about what uh, history says about race and power. So they walk into your class on the first day uh, and you say, uh, you know, let's talk about Black Lives Matter. What's the reaction? Well, the thing is, is, you know, last year, Freddie Gray was was Freddie Gray was murdered. Yeah. And I taught, I taught two classes last uh, what spring, twenty fifteen, right? Basically, deal basically trying to deal with uh, police violence against blacks, yep. right? A racial politics class and a black politics class. When Freddie Gray was murdered, and the Baltimore uprising happened, they actually canceled classes at Hopkins. Because they felt for fear of, for fear uh, that it would actually hit the campus. My, the, so it wasn't just something. It, it no longer was something that they had to wrestle with, kind of theoretically. It was something that they actually lived. So this semester, when I uh, or uh, um, what? So what? This past semester that just ended, when I taught a class called Black Lives Matter, when I taught what Power and Democracy in American City, which was really about kind of Black Lives Matter in another way, I got. Five times more students than I thought I was going to get. Is that right? Right? Five times. And I haven't talked about this publicly before, but I got a number of lacrosse kids take my Black Lives Matter class. Yeah. <laughs> right? And, and I remember- And we should be clear for, for, for folks here in Michigan, the, the lacrosse team is like the, it's like is like the, It might as well be like the football team at yeah, Michigan. Right. Right. right? Huge deal. B- big deal. Big deal. And, I, and those kids- and, and I that teaching that class was like pulling teeth because- I just felt I wasn't reaching the kids. And I usually, you know, for, for folks who've encountered me, I'm really big on conversation, right? Like, like the conversation we're having, I'd right. have that in class. But I just couldn't, I just, it just didn't <laughs> seem like I could get that conversation. I was like, this class, they must, be, they, they must really not like this class. But then I end up, near the end of it, I talked to one of them, like I think I was at the gym about to play basketball. And it turns out they had a real life encounter with somebody it, they basically they caught somebody about to break it, breaking into their crib, <laughs> and stealing stuff. A black guy, right? Rather than actually beating the crap out of this guy and calling the police on him, they got their stuff back. But then they had a conversation with him about the prison industrial complex, <laughs> right? Right? Whereas, like, which, which is which says that that those kids are kind of ready, even kids that you might think. Um, are ideologically predisposed against this. They're really ready for this. Right. They're open to it. They're open to it. We might call that a, an explicit example of the practical application of academics in, yeah, <laughs> in teaching, Baltimore. Man, right? Teaching matters. <laughs> teaching matters. <laughs> it was the craziest thing. I, I just knew. I'm like, these kids are not are tuning me out. But no. <laughs> They're listening. They, they were yeah, straight right. up listening. Right. Who knew? Uh, let's take some calls. we got a lot of people who want to join in the conversation here. Jason in South Lyon. 
Welcome to Detroit Today. Hey, how you doing? Good, how are you? Yeah. Oh, I'm doing fantastic. Thanks mm-hmm. for asking. Uh, I grew up on the southwest side of Detroit, and mm-hmm. I'm a, I'm a white, white, well, Italian American. Uh-huh. And um, a lot of the things that I hear you, uh, like African Americans, um, claim about saying, I went through a lot of the exact same things, like being beat, being beaten up by the police, uh, getting you know pulled over for no reason, uh-huh. and um, I feel that it's more or less of a economic issue more than a race issue. Because uh, if because I went through the exact same things, so because and, and what you're saying is because you were a poor white kid from right. Southwest Detroit, mm-hmm. there were a lot of there were a lot of things that happened to you uh, that that were unfair as well. Right, exactly. I even had uh, charges brought up against me before that I didn't even commit the crime. I didn't have any money to defend myself and had to take a plea bargain, you know. And um, I also went to Detroit Public Schools. I couldn't, I could, I could barely read and write when I got out of high school. Wow. I, but uh, so when I went to college, I had to teach myself like almost everything, everything from school. So I had to work like ten times harder than the next person. Yeah. And um. That's basically all. Yeah, no, no, Jason. I really, I really appreciate uh, your calling in. It's, yeah. uh, it's a really important point, um, and it, I, you know, I want to give you some credit for for being able to to sort of admit uh, that that kind of difficulty uh, in your past, Lester Spence. This is something that I hear a lot, right? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, poor whites uh, talk about the the struggles that they've mm-hmm. had. And they see a difference. I mean, they, they they see a distinction between the way they deal with it, for mm-hmm. instance, and the way African Americans deal with it. They say, "Well, you know, I just kept working. I kept pushing ahead. Why should we? Why should we accommodate anything else f- uh, for African Americans?" Of course, that divorces four hundred years of of history from yeah. the conversation. But but I think yeah. it's an important it's an important dynamic in the sense that. Uh, poor whites and poor blacks, I think, in 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 absolute terms, have a lot of common interests. Mm-hmm. This is where they get divided. Yeah. So real quickly, um, and thanks, Jason. Uh, so if you look at something like policing, uh, there are a number of instance, instances in which police have actually killed uh, white folk in, in similar ways sure. to how they've killed black folk. The challenge is that it's disproportionate. Right. So blacks are far more likely to be the victims of uh, of uh, police brutality and certain types of police uh, violence than whites are. But here's the class dynamic. If we look, if we just take the take black folk, right, black folk who grew up in places like Inkster, where I grew up, who grew up in places like Ecorse and Pontiac, they're far more likely to suffer police violence than black folk who grow up in Gross Point and Bloomfield and Bloomfield Hills. So the question is, is like, how do we, given that there are white folk who suffer these same forms of violence, even though they're even though blacks are more likely to suffer because, you know, because of race, how do we connect those? Right. And part of the hurdle to connecting those dynamics is that uh, is that white working class folk uh, tend to think of this stuff in individual terms and tend to think of the solution as kind of pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. Right, right. right. Government Again, government is the problem as opposed to the solution. Whereas um, even though blacks are becoming more conservative compared to where they were, blacks are still more likely to say, you know what, we actually need some type of government intervention. Well, and, 
and let's be honest, government intervention has been the story of black people's lives since the beginning of this country. I mean, th- this idea that we should somehow now extract government uh, is inconsistent with That's right. the fact that government defined us from the beginning as property, that government yes. Uh, yes. you know, stalled and fought itself over how to change that, uh, we fought a war over that. Yeah, um, and, and it's, but it's not just black folk, right? I mean, so you look at a city like Detroit, like uh, an area like Detroit, so my uh, my aunt and uncle are like one of the first black uh, black folk to be able to move into Southfield, right? A city, a, a suburb like Southfield or Redford, where my parents live, yeah. those suburbs don't exist without government subsidy, right? Right. right. They don't exist without something like the Interstate Highway Defense Act or the Federal Housing Act or the Federal Housing Act or the GI Bill, right? You know, you you I, I, I drove past uh, yesterday. I was hanging out in Midtown and I saw that new stadium that Illich has. Yeah. That's State subsidized. Right. Heavily. Heavily. Yeah. Heavily. Right. So when we talk about government intervention, the reality is that, that government is consistently intervening. <laughs> government, when Reagan talked about getting government out of our lives, what really ended up happening is government never left. It just changed what it did. Right. The way it was intervening. The way it was intervening. Yeah. Right. So that's the conversation. So Jay's, Jason is absolutely right that the, that there is no form of power that just exerts itself on black people it exerts itself on all of us the question is is how do we take you know the reality of something like police violence and use it to generate a broad conversation amongst blacks and people who aren't black about how the police should function yeah yeah Uh, let's go to karen in detroit karen welcome to detroit today uh, thank you for taking the call, Stephen. Sure. This has been a great conversation. Thank you. I wanted the professor to comment, if you could, on the power of the media to shape the conversation. Mm-hmm. Stephen mentioned the term bailout <laughs> yes. used yeah. in the school system struggles. And when you look back at the Kerner Commission report from 67, they talked about and had addressed the role of the media and, and was critical of how the media defined the 67 rebellion and the impact and the need to get um, better media coverage and involvement of African Americans in the system. Yeah. So if you could comment on that, because you know I heard this phrase recently: they're the poor, the poorly informed, and people are poorly informed. Schools don't teach history, but then you go to the media, and they can be poorly informed about the power of the media and what's going well, because the, the media, media doesn't really leverage our story. So I just want to hear your comments. Yeah, yeah Karen, thank you very much. Great, great question. Great, great uh, question. Lester, go ahead. So, you, so first, the, the, what, what type of structural dynamics are going on and how does, affect, you know, how does a neoliberal turn affect us? So in the mid-90s, uh, Bill Clinton signs the, uh, he, he basically signs, he basically uh, supports uh, relaxing FCC regulations that enables uh, corporate consolidation yeah. of the media, right? Where, and, and that we know that the more corporate, that corporate media tends to support or tends to articulate certain types of stories sure. that actually lead to, uh, po- that, that lead to policies that tend to support corporations. Right. right. So that's that's the dynamic in which this is happening. Now, now how does race race come into play in all this uh, in a couple of different ways? So I remember you may not remember this, Steve, but Steve used to uh, when Steve when you worked for Michigan Daily, I think yeah. it was a win, the Winter Olympics and Michelle Kwan was the American skater, okay. was an American yeah. skater, I think. Uh, 
and or maybe a gymnast. That but when she we was, were in college. Yeah. Yeah, when we were in college. And I remember the headline because she ended up losing. Right. She ended up losing to somebody. And the headline <laughs> was American defeats Quan. <laughs> now, Michelle Kwan herself was American, but it's American, American defeats Kwan. Right. So it's this whole it's this implicit dynamic right. that articulates what America is as something that's and who's not part of it. Yeah, who's not part of it, right? So, so the America, America is this, but then there's this large group of folk <laughs> who aren't white, right? Who are not American, right? And who, in some cases, are not only not American, they're anti-American, right? And they end up being kind of this disease that America has to inoculate itself right, from, right? Right, so, and uh, well, uh, that gets back to this conversation about bailout. Yes. Detroit fatigue, yes. right? Uh, yes. Defining the city and its population as being separate from uh, the state of Michigan, yes. and and its fortunes somehow are separate from the state of Michigan. Exactly. So you can actually have somebody at the same time say, "We're not going to support a Detroit bailout. They don't deserve a dime more of our money," and then vote for giving Illich tax dollars for the new Red Wings. The same, and see no contradiction, right? right? So it's those structures, there, there's a set of structural dynamics that cause the media to function certain ways. And then that's related to kind of the, kind of the standard ways people see race. Right. right. Well, and of course that's exacerbated in the media by the contraction in the industry. I mean, oh, there's, a, there's not as much money uh, to be made as there used to be. Newsrooms are emaciated. Yes. Uh, no uh, investigative journalism. Uh, that's right. I mean, you've got uh, younger and younger people pushed into uh, into roles that they're not ready for. I mean, that makes all of those things you're talking about much worse. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to take another quick break here. Uh, when I come back, I'm going to continue my conversation with Lester Spence, uh, Associate Professor of Political Science at Johns Hopkins University, author of Knocking the Hustle Against the Neoliberal Turn in Black Politics, and calls. Stay on the phones. Maggie in Detroit, Paul in Royal Oak, Gene in Detroit. We will get to you. Stay with us on Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for being here. My guest is Lester Spence. He is a Detroit native, associate professor of political science at Johns Hopkins University, and author of Knocking the Hustle Against the Neoliberal Turn in Black Politics. You can see him tomorrow at 7 at the Scarab Club here in Detroit. He's going to be doing a book reading, answering questions about the book and the subjects inside it. Uh, 7 o'clock tomorrow at the Scarab Club. Uh, I want to start, uh, Lester, again, this segment with a, with a quote. This one from uh, ta Coates author of uh, an, an epic piece about reparations and why America ought to be talking about and coming to terms with that idea with regard to black people. He was a guest on the show last year. There is a traditional view of black people in this country as criminally prone, as more prone to criminality than other people. If, if, you, if you can understand it, if you can actually trace the history, and you can, I, and I tried to do it in the piece, from 1619 to 1965 of people looking askance at efforts of, of black people to improve themselves. Well, when these folks find themselves in a situation and you ask yourself, well, what way are we more likely to address this? Are we more likely to address this with funding for education? Are we more likely to address this with, you know, funding for jobs? Are we more likely to address this with funding towards mental health? Or are we more likely to consider them criminals and just, you know, lock them away? It becomes pretty clear. 
As, uh, the author, Tanasi Coates, uh, talking actually not about his piece on reparations, but his cri- uh, piece on the criminal industrial complex and the way it affects African American. He was a guest on the show uh, last year. Uh, Lester, of course, that that is a huge part of this neoliberal turn you're talking about mm-hmm. is the expansion of uh, of uh, the criminal industrial complex mm-hmm. and its involvement in black communities and with black people. Yeah. So uh, when I when we think about that that curve, I started off with looking at that uptick in inequality. The question, you know, the question is is how does this happen? You know, because this when, once this happened, once this. It's not like this stuff actually benefits whites in, say, for example, Macomb County. It's not like they get a lot of material benefits out of it. How, yeah, right. yeah, out of it. You know, it's not like you know, like killing the unions actually helps white folk that much. Uh, what ends up happening is folks consistently begin to attach progressive government to black bodies, right? And once welfare gets attached to that black female body, once crime gets attached to that black male body. All of a sudden, support for killing welfare, support for punitive approaches to crime starts to shoot up, right? Once taxes gets connected to black people, it's like support for progressive taxes goes down like a rock. Right. And uh, this is, I mean, we should should point out here, this has been the strategy of the National Republican Party since the 1960s, right? Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, when they started to lose large uh, numbers of uh, of Democrats because of, of, of their voters to the Democratic Party because mm-hmm. of, uh, of of the civil rights struggle, their their turn was to this division you're talking about. Uh, attach these things to yes. to black people and convince poor whites that they won't be affected by it, that somehow yeah. they'll escape uh, the consequences. But yes, but the thing, but interesting thing again, is bipartisan. So when Ronald Reagan beats Walter Mondale like they stole something, yeah. <laughs> you know, the Democratic um, Party uh, had conducted a series of focus groups in Macomb P- County, in Lakeside Mall, and what those white folk, the, the focus <laughs> groups results were so deeply racist that we know that they, you know, that they existed. We know what they said, but they destroyed the actual data. Right. Right. And, and so out of that, we see the rise of the Democratic Leadership Council, for instance, this more moderate, less focused on uh, on race and remediation of racism, uh, talking about talking more broadly and mm-hmm. less sort of aggressively about about those things. Um, yeah. So so the conversations we have about racism about what we need to do for black people they're not just they're not really conversations about what we need to do for black people they're really conversations about what we need to be as americans and what we do for americans because there's not there's no policy that was directed just towards black people progressively that did not in fact bleed out and help white populations. that's right that's right uh, let's go to gene in detroit gene welcome to detroit today hello hey how are you not bad. Go ahead, Gene. <clears throat> I'd like to ask the professor about what he thought uh, black political leadership was lacking in terms of their responses to globalization and technology. 
Wow. Oh. Wow, Gene. Oh, 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 Great he question. Whoa. I got to give the listeners a little props here. Before we went on the air, uh, I told Lester, I said, you know, the callers have become such uh, a contributor to the substance of the conversation. They don't call and just ask questions. They interject things that maybe I'm not thinking of or the guests aren't thinking of. And Gene right oh, there wow. is a wonderful uh, example. So, Gene, thanks very oh, much that, for your call oh, and your question. Uh, how did black leadership? respond to globalization and and how should they have and we of course we only have yeah. three minutes left in the program, oh i can do but, i can uh, i can do this pretty can quick get to that yeah yeah, yeah i think <laughs> i do it pretty quick so if you look at uh the congressional black caucus from 1972 to now what you see is kind of a committee shift where there's a moment in time when a number of the members of the cbc were members of committees that actually uh, that actually dealt with union policy and then they supported union policy but now, very, I don't know if there's a single CBC member that's a member of any committee that deals with union policy, much less supports union yeah. policy in general, right? So what we, and what we see is an increased degree to which CBC members are, um, are subjected to the same lobbies. You know, they're getting money from the same lobbies that support something like NAFTA, that support globalization. So what that ends up doing is that ends up supporting certain black populations, Right, black populations with high incomes, et cetera, et cetera, but it ends up basically uh, significantly reducing the quality of life for working class black folk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, great, great answer. question. Great answer. Great, to a great question. question. Uh, we got time for one more uh, call here. Maggie in Detroit. Welcome to Detroit today. Thank you. Sure. Such a relief to hear this conversation. It's what's really happening in politics over the last 50, 60 years, and yeah. it's so relieving to actually hear it spoken about. Thank you. I appreciate that. I just wanted to bring up, earlier in the show, you talked about the timeline for neoliberalism kind of taking hold in black politics. And a lot of times if I talk with people about uh, good things, of course, the many, many fantastic things about black leadership in Detroit and in the metro Detroit area over that time period, people will say, like, oh, well, what about the corruption? And as you were speaking, I'm wondering, is corruption in black politics, you know, it exists everywhere, but if it exists in black politics, is that an aspect of neoliberalism in black politics too? too? Wow. Wow. Uh, now, now we only have a minute left, but, <laughs> but Maggie, um, I, I yeah. really appreciate your calling and, and asking that question. Uh, Lester, go ahead. Talk about the relationship between corruption and yeah. inefficiency. I mean, there's a lot of waste in, in government or the, that's what we're told. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, w- the way I think about it quickly. Um, so first you could talk about kind of neoliberal politics in, a, in case of a city like Detroit and come up with people who are kind of, who were corrupt, like Kwame Kilpatrick, who was, who was, um, um, who put Detroit in, in debt, not just because it was corruption, but because of the bad deal he signed with the bond rating sure, agencies. Sure. Uh, but then somebody who definitely wasn't corrupt, in uh, Dennis Archer, who actually implemented a lot of neoliberal fo- reforms. To the extent I think that there's a relationship between neoliberalism and corruption, I think that once you make the argument that government doesn't work, that government itself is the problem, and you significantly reduce regulation, you kind of open yourself up to corruption, right? right? So the most corrupt dynamic, uh, most of the corruption that we're seeing now in Detroit politics is attached to the public school dynamic. And people thought that if you implemented neoliberal reforms, you treated the schools like businesses, you'd actually reduce- You'd clear it out. You'd clear it out. But what we see, because you've got no regulation, because these schools aren't really public in the same way, 
it actually opened a door to far more corruption than I think we've ever seen before. Yeah. All right, Lester Spence, Associate Professor of Political Science at Johns Hopkins, author of Knocking the Hustle Against the Leo- Neoliberal Turn in Black Politics. Thanks for being here. Man, I love this. I love 313, 313 <laughs> right. all day, That's every right. day. What? That's right. Uh, we'll have you back. Uh, catch him tomorrow at the Scarab Club, 7 p.m. here in Detroit about his book and uh, the themes inside it. This is 1019 WDT Detroit, Wayne State's public radio station. I'll see you tomorrow.